0: You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 15th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, Taiwan turns away from China with the election of a president who vows to protect the island's sovereignty.
1: I want to thank the Taiwanese people for writing a new chapter in our democracy. We have shown the world how much we cherish our democracy. This is our unwavering commitment.
0: Also coming up with reports that the missile capability of the Houthi militia remains intact. We'll examine just how much difference the US-led attacks have made. We'll look ahead to this week in Davos, where Ukraine will push for a peace plan, and we'll have the latest from our correspondent in the Balkans.
2: 25 years on, Kosovo remembers the Ratchak massacre and threatens a genocide suit against Serbia. I'm Monocle's man in the Balkans, Guy Delaunay, and I'll have the details of that plus a population drain causing pain and Serbia's persistent post-poll protests.
0: Plus the newspapers and a look ahead to the Emmys. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. <laughs> First, a look at what else is happening in today's news. Republican candidates have made their final pitches ahead of what's predicted to be one of the coldest caucuses to be held in Iowa. Hamas has released a video showing three Israeli hostages it is holding in Gaza and residents in the Icelandic fishing village of Grindavik have been forced to flee their homes after a volcano erupted and lava has poured towards their homes, destroying several of them. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, Taiwan has elected a new president whose office it could see tensions rise with neighbouring China. William Lai and his DPP party won by a bigger margin than expected. His campaign openly angered Beijing as he promised to protect the island's sovereignty and to maintain a separate national identity. China, however, considers the island state to be part of its own territory. Well, to tell us more, I'm joined by Patricia Thornton, Associate, professor in the politics of China at the University of Oxford. Everett, good morning to you, Patricia.
3: Oh, good morning, Emma. Good to be with you. So just,
0: just bring us up to date here with the reaction to all this, because up until the point of the election, China's president, Xi Jinping, had really tried to intimidate voters, saying that um, William Lai was a troublemaker who would take them closer to war. And this, to all its sense and purposes, had the opposite effect.
3: Yes, it did. It seems as though Xi Jinping's policy backfired yet again. Um, So with all of the very angry language, the so-called wolf warrior diplomacy coming out of uh, Beijing, uh, what we really seem to see was a very, first of all, very high turnout, uh, almost as high as in 2020, which was the last presidential election, which of course took place during the Hong Kong protests, which would have had a major effect. Um, and uh, it, and then we saw the DPP, the current ruling party, which is perceived to be closer to pro-independence than the other two parties, return to power. And that was not the candidate that Beijing would have favoured.
0: So tell us a little bit more about William Lai.
3: Yeah. So William Lai is a um, he's the current vice president under um, uh, the current president. And uh, he is a Harvard educated former doctor. Um, He came to political prominence basically as uh, the mayor of Tainan uh, in the early 2010s. And he was once known as the golden child of Taiwanese independence. uh, And he did once describe himself as a pragmatic worker for Taiwan's independence. But he's now stepped back from that position considerably uh, when he became the vice president uh, under Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, the policy of the DPP has been that Taiwan doesn't need to declare independence because it is already de facto independent and that they seek a peaceful resolution to conflict with China. And he reiterated that in his victory speech, uh, that he had no intention, he has no intention of declaring independence. However, there is considerable unhappiness in Beijing, as you might imagine, because this is the party that represents the more the relatively more independence position that uh, that Xi Jinping would like to avoid.
0: Well, William Lai's uh, olive, olive branch was very clear, wasn't it? He offered goodwill. We hope China realises peace serves both sides. Uh, he favours more exchange and dialogue over yes. obstructionism and conflict. I mean, how is China going to react to that?
3: Yes, that's a good question. And, and and the Chinese media has remained very silent, actually. Uh, on Chinese social media, there was some attempted discussion by Chinese citizens about the uh, Taiwan election as it was even ongoing, but it was quickly censored and blocked out. And there has been really very little that's been said. Um, I, we know that Joe Biden, uh, President Biden in the United States, sent a, a delegation to Taiwan yesterday immediately. After the election. And China has come out and condemned that move, but they have not really said much about the Taiwan uh, election result at all.
0: I think the Chinese uh, Taiwan Affairs Office has said that the results showed that the DPP can by no means represent mainstream public opinion on the island. The fact that China looks as if it's toning down the rhetoric, what does that signify? Is it a realisation that the warnings that it gave before the election simply didn't work or is it just biding its time and working out what to do next?
3: Well if we think that uh, they are uh, somehow reversing themselves, I I think there's little evidence of that because Xi Jinping doesn't seem to have learned from previous mistakes. Um, But I do think that's a more realistic uh, assessment of the actual electoral electoral outcome because at the same time that Taiwan went to the polls to vote for a president, they were also carrying out legislative elections at the same time. And when we look at the, the new composition of Taiwan's incoming parliament, the picture changes quite a bit. So the DPP has now won the presidency, but they lost their majority in the parliament. And the KMT gained one seat over the DPP, so the the KMT, the closest rival, they now hold one more seat than the DPP does. And then the third party, which is the Taiwan People's Party, they gained eight seats, which actually puts them in this position of actually being sort of a veto player moving forward. So William Lai can only get anything done as president of Taiwan moving forward if he's able to build a coalition with the TPP. And it's not clear how uh, successful he'll be at doing that.
0: But it is clear that Taiwan will not be moving to, closer to China for the foreseeable future, at least.
3: It would seem that way, yes. Uh, Although it's not clear what the TPP uh, will want to do, but they seem to be a more pragmatic party. They're more concerned about domestic economy. But there are certainly no plans, I think, uh, that are currently on the agenda to make any major moves one way or the other. The uh, 88 percent of the Taiwanese voters are clear in wanting to maintain the status quo.
0: Um, the United States deployed an aircraft carrier east of Taiwan just before the elections. What signal was that sending? Apart yes. from a very a very clear one, I would imagine.
3: Yes. Well, so the idea there obviously was to uh, attempt to prevent uh, any further intimidation of Taiwanese voters by uh, mainland China. Uh, As I'm sure your audience and you are well aware, in the previous several months, uh, mainland China has been sending everything that you can imagine across the straits, whether it's uh, balloons spy balloons or or even uh, jet fighters in an attempt to intimidate Taiwan. And Immediately before the election, uh, there, was, uh, there was some threatening language from Beijing that there was a serious hope on the part of Xi Jinping that Taiwanese voters would, would keep uh, their, their safety and security in mind. And again, as you said at the top of the, the hour, that this really quite backfired uh, for Beijing.
0: Tell us a little bit about where this leaves the United States. Apart from deploying its its aircraft carriers, um, we had that almost predictable, contradictory set of messages coming out. Because we had Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, congratulating uh, William Lyon his win. It says the island's robust democratic system and electoral process uh, is to be praised. That seems fair enough. But then yesterday, Joe Biden, the president, when asked for his reaction to the election, said we do not support Taiwanese independence. It's almost a very clear example of just how nuanced the U.S.'s role in all this is.
3: Mm, That's right. So um, the United States has accepted and signed on to a one China policy policy. Uh, which differs from what Beijing cl- declares to be a one China principle um, in, in which uh, the United States is committed to a peaceful resolution without giving official recognition to Taiwan. The situation now with William Lai is slightly more complicated because his uh, vice president uh, is Xiao Bi Kim, who's the former uh, Taiwan representative to the United States. Her mother is in fact an American or was an American citizen Um, And she, too, is U.S.-educated herself, so we have an incoming DPP administration with even closer ties to the United States than Tsai Ing-wen currently had. And uh, that leaves the United States in an interesting sort of a position. Biden has previously said that if Taiwan should be a a victim of a Chinese invasion, that he would literally commit U.S. troops to the defense of Taiwan. So that's a really uh, remarkable change in policy from the previous Trump administration. So much rides in terms of the fate of Taiwan, much now rides on the outcome of the upcoming U.S., Election because if uh, Trump should win, and that would be an interesting outcome, but if Trump should win the U.S. election, it's not clear that the how how much support there would be um, for Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion.
0: Briefly, Patricia, the rest of the world's reaction has been has gone to type, hasn't it? There's been uh, praise for the democratic uh, process in by the French, by the Germans, by the British, by the Japanese. The Russians have said that they will always consider Taiwan as, as, as an integral part of China. Does this change the relationship with China, of China with other countries when when people sort of align themselves with Taiwan?
3: Well, just one quick note is that this morning, uh, one of Taiwan's few remaining official allies has announced that it is no longer allied uh, with Taiwan. That's the island, the Pacific island of Nauru. So it's now broken off, leaving Taiwan with only 12 countries in the world that now officially recognize its status. So I think uh, we can expect uh, somewhat of a more mixed response with uh, democratic countries, generally celebrating this exercise in uh, a democracy, high participation, high voter turnout, and a refusal of the Taiwanese to be intimidated. But on the other hand, you have some of uh, China's allies and other countries that are hoping to uh, gain favor with Beijing who will uh, take condemnatory attitudes toward this uh, outcome.
0: Patricia Thornton, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. This is The Globalist. 10.13am in Sana'a and 7.13am here in London. How much impact did last week's US-led airstrikes have on the Houthi rebels' ability to target ships in the Red Sea? Well, if the reports this weekend are anything to go by, not a great deal. The first detailed assessment suggests the strikes damaged or destroyed about 90% of the targets they were striking, but the group still retains about three-quarters of its ability to fire missiles and drones at ships transiting the Red Sea. Well, to tell us more, on enjoy- by Sanam Vakil, his director of the Middle East and North Africa programme at Chatham House. Good morning, Sanam.
4: Good morning. So
0: these reports came out this weekend and the suggestion was is that they hit more than 60 missile and drone targets. The strikes had only damaged about 20% of the Houthis' offensive capability. So could you just flesh that out a little more for us? Yes, of course. Um,
4: The US and the UK certainly wanted to uh, set back Uh, the Houthis' uh, military capability, and the strikes um, uh, were an effort at doing that. Uh, But beyond that, um, even if uh, the strikes were um, broader and had targeted and taken out uh, more of what uh, the Houthis have on the ground, uh, the question here is also of the intent of the group, which has very much piled in to this uh, regional um, war, or what is looking more like a regional war, uh, trying to uh, defend Palestinians uh, from Sana, um, and showing that they won't be cowed, despite numerous, uh, very direct messages coming from Washington uh, that uh, they need to cease and desist.
0: And the fact that they only managed to target or successfully destroy about 20% of the Houthis' offensive capability clearly demonstrates just how serious the challenge is facing the likes of Joe Biden and his allies in trying to stop the Houthis. Certainly. And uh, just for
4: for listeners, uh, the US, the UK, Saudi Arabia, um, the UAE have been trying um, for nine years now to uh, set back the Houthis, to limit their uh, power in, in North Yemen, um, that effort has uh, effectively failed. And what we've been witnessing for the past year and a half were efforts to maintain a ceasefire and uh, to transition away from an active war uh, to a ceasefire so that Yemen could reconstitute itself um, away from all of this instability and and also a humanitarian crisis with This conflict uh, really escalating uh, on the Red Sea and in the Bab al-Mandeb, Yemen risks uh, a, a huge spillover that could have impact for Gulf security. Obviously, it's already impacting merchant shipping and maritime security. So this is a really dangerous moment.
0: How much were the Houthis a security priority before Hamas launched its attack on Israel in, 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 on the 7th of October. There's a suggestion that clearly there is an awful lot that the Western world has to be worried about at the moment. So perhaps resources and the focus was diverted elsewhere mistakenly.
4: Well, I think it's very easy and we oftentimes criticize policymakers. On this one, though, I would say that um, Western policymakers have been focused on uh, trying to contain, deter um, and also diplomatically um, engage with the Houthis to transition away from a war um, and bring political stability to Yemen. The problem is that the Houthis... um, Perhaps, uh, you know, there was an anticipation that a ceasefire was imminent. They had been negotiating with Saudi Arabia um, and that negotiation um, left a deal on the table. But it was a deal that remains unsigned. Uh, And, you know, we could perhaps say that there should have been more pressure put on the Houthis. I think the Houthis um, have an incentive to escalate um, perhaps governance and accountability in the business of everyday uh, life is something that they're uh, not seeking uh, right now. And in fact, um, by standing up to the quote-unquote United States and the West uh, and uh, taking on the sort of mantle of of Palestinians, the Houthis could be trying to build greater credibility and legitimacy inside Yemen, where they do um, control 70% of the population, much of it, of course, by force. Uh, So, you know, they do have domestic objectives here.
0: That retaliation has already begun. I think Reuters is reporting in the last couple of hours that um, the US has shot down an anti-ship cruise missile fired from Houthi militant areas of Yemen uh, towards a US destroyer in the, in the Red Sea. There's a sign here, isn't there, that the Houthis are hot for a fight. As, as you have said, this is their priority. They are well resourced um, and that the United States might have opened something here that it might struggle to close. Uh, yes, the U.S. has definitely,
4: um, maybe, as you put it, opened it. But I think, uh, or there is uh, some debate that um, had the U.S. not uh, reasserted some red lines and made it clear that attacks on ships and tankers uh, was one step too far. Um, the Houthis would remain uh, uncontrolled. And so this is about deterrence. And this is about uh, actually trying uh, to contain uh, the spillover from the Gaza war. Uh, You know, the real question or the real bluff would be if the war came to an end in Gaza, what would the Houthis do? And they're sort of trying to link their objectives uh, with that uh, conflict. I think that their objectives, though, are very much local. And this is about Gulf regional security. It's about Yemen security. And if the Houthis are being so brazen now, you know, this sort of foreshadows where we're going. This is not a group uh, that is focused on government, uh, governance and accountability, uh, providing food and um, provision and education to their citizens, but rather um, looking to be uh, very inflammatory.
0: There's no sign that the uh, Israel Hamas conflict is ending it's 100 days of war yesterday was marked and the prime minister the israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu was incredibly defiant in his tone You, you talked about where things were going where are things going with this because as you say containment is a is an absolute priority but it looks like a very complicated job now Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, I mean, there are multiple dynamics,
4: and I think um, it's hard to separate them because, of course, the war is beginning to blend into a regional conflict. I don't think we're fully there. Uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon and, and the Islamic Republic of Iran have uh, made it abundantly clear that they don't want a broader regional war. Or they have no intent in escalating further, but that doesn't mean that these uh, low level conflicts uh, that we are seeing on the Red Sea uh, and in Iraq, for example, can't um, escalate or um, continue. Uh, And and so that's the first issue that's quite hard to separate out. But secondly, um, and I think very importantly, the war in Gaza is continuing with no end in sight, with no ceasefire in the pipeline. And uh, Palestinians are um, dying in extraordinary numbers uh, that are h- very alarming. Uh, and at 100 days with 25,000 people dead, uh, it, you know, this is sort of a, an epic crisis um, that I don't think we, we can fully see all of the consequences of.
0: Sanam Bakil, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Still to come on today's programme, well, yesterday afternoon, Denmark's queen, formally abdicated, will examine her legacy.
1: As one of the world's oldest monarchies welcomed a new head of state, there was something absent. Crown's regalia stayed put in Rosenberg Castle.
0: You're listening to The Globalist.
5: UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work we know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world.
0: Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is a journalist and expert on geopolitics, Latika Burke. Good morning, Latika. Good morning, Emma. Looking bright-eyed, bushy tailed, and
6: ready to face Monday on a very cold Monday as well. It's all an illusion. Really? (laughs) Absolutely. It's too early and too cold. It's horrible, isn't it? Minus four this morning.
0: Excellent. Welcome to London. Um, we started the program with a with a recap of what's happened in Taiwan over the weekend, mm. with the DPP, William Lai, now the president, very much taking Taiwan uh, internally away from China. That path away from China seems to be even more clear set. Um, we heard very briefly um, in that item the fact that there's some breaking news that Nauru, the island, has severed formal ties with Taiwan. Um, tell us how that's being
6: reported. Yes, this is uh, across all the media this morning, and rightly so, because Nauru has become the first country since the election in Taiwan over the weekend to switch allegiances to Beijing. And I must say, this has come come as, as a surprise, Emma, but it also does come within a context, which I think is really critical to understanding why Nauru might have done this. Nauru is a country that is essentially going broke and I I wrote a story about this a couple of months ago actually. They desperately are looking for ways to diversify their economy. Uh, Their economy is essentially propped up by the Government of Australia um, through the Offshore Processing Centre for Asylum Seekers. Um, And asylum seekers have all but stopped uh, travelling to Australia because of those very harsh measures that Australia put in place. So Nauru does get a, a kind of retainer from the Australian Government, even though it's not processing any asylum seekers. But it can clearly see that that business model and that pipeline of funding is drying up or going to expire. It's mining um, back in the, uh, I think, the 80s. It was really ruined and devastated the environment of Nauru. They've used all that money up. And so now they're desperately looking around for some more cash. One of those options is to deep sea mine, and that's not being granted so far. So naturally, uh, when you look at some of the reasoning behind this decision this morning, Uh, Nauru, the government says it's in the best interests of Nauru that it will seek full resumption of diplomatic ties with China and no longer recognise the the Republic of China, Taiwan, as a separate country, but, quote, rather as an, as an inalienable part of China's ter- territory. Now, that's not too different from previous statements they've made, but they do go on to say that we will no longer develop any official relations or official exchanges with Taiwan. And that leaves Taiwan a little bit more lonely, only 12 formal diplomatic allies. Now, Why would uh, Nauru be suddenly interested in China? Well, I think the answer really here is cash, and this has been an ongoing theme of the entire Pacific. China has been opening its checkbook, uh, promising lots of Pacific islands, all sorts of infrastructure funding and guarantees in exchange for perhaps use of their territory, being able to land military ships at various Pacific islands. And this is a real geopolitical contest that's taking out In this area of the world, tiny, tiny islands, huge might, because, of course, if China gets a foothold in one Pacific island and then another, suddenly they've got a chain that is in striking distance of Australia and, and of course, within the United States and Australia's patch.
0: Indeed, because it's bad enough news for Taiwan, which is trying to flex its pretty little muscles, but very
6: influential ones this weekend. But it's even more problematic for Australia. Yes, Australia and Nauru are very, very close allies. So I think this will be noticed with a a bit of surprise in Canberra as well. But this does go to the core of the dilemma in the Pacific. If America and Australia uh, and some of its allies, including Britain and France, for that matter, uh, don't come up with an offer that is good enough for what the Pacific Islands want then there is this risk that they go looking elsewhere and, of course, the natural partner there for them is China. Now, one example of Australia actually very cleverly, I think, uh, trying to alleviate this was a deal they just did with Tuvalu, which is where they offered climate refuge to the entire population of Tuvalu. And in exchange for that, uh, Tuvalu has said we will never have a security pact with another country. Now, obviously, that's about denying China. We don't mention China in those statements, but clearly, that's that's what it's all about. So, there is a really fierce contest underway in the Pacific for influence.
0: Uh, let's turn to um, let's talk about influence as well in China again, but in a different sphere, a very different sphere. Um, up in the Alps and at Davos this week. Um, the Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is expected to turn up at, at Davos on Thursday. Before then, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about this in the, in the programme, um, there is a security meeting um, at Davos of, of security representatives from countries who were all at, 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 at WEF, the World Economic Forum. And the purpose of this meeting is to discuss whether there is a workable solution or a workable way of finding peace in Ukraine. Yes. And China's name has been mentioned an awful lot in the last 24 hours.
6: Yeah, this is really interesting. This is the fourth meeting of national security advisors. And each time these meetings get larger and larger in terms of the number of countries showing up to have or play a role in what a peace plan might look like for Ukraine. Interestingly, China was not at this one, which was held in Switzerland on Sunday, as you say, Emma, just before Davos officially kicks off today, or the WEF uh, kicks off today. And that's somewhat of a surprise, because China had attended the last National Security Advisors meeting. Um, now, this was clearly noticed by journalists who put to Andriy Yermek, uh, that's uh, the national um chief of staff to the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, you know, do you think this says China's not interested in playing a role here? We all know China has, probably could play keymaker if it wanted to here. And uh, he said, well, we need China at the table and he doesn't actually see a viable peace plan without China being a part of that and helping broker that, which I think is really, really interesting then asked if the Chinese Premier Li Kang, who's going to Davos, will speak on Tuesday. Lots of expectation around that speech. We'll, we'll meet Zelensky. Uh, Yomak says, let's see. So this is being reported very widely across all the media this morning as well, Emma, and I think with very good reason, because why did China not attend that last round of talks? What's China going to do this weekend? And, and what kind of role does China see for itself in determining whatever peace plan comes out of this process? Let's end on a a reassessment of British politics. It's always nice to sort of end on a
0: slightly sort of muddy note. Um, The constant... Um, problems that the United Kingdom is facing in, in knowing what to do with its asylum seekers that uh, satisfies the appetites of those who wish to turn the boats back um, and those who see common sense. I and mean, you mentioned actually Australia's incredibly tough uh, deportation policy or, or the treatment of asylum seekers. The United Kingdom's trying to do the same thing with um, Rwanda, it wants to send illegal asylum seekers to, to Rwanda for processing. Um, it's going to the Commons this week. They're having another go at getting the bill through. Um, let's talk a little bit about an article that's in The uh, the Independent, in The Eye, about the fact that, in fact, Rwandans are being granted asylum here
6: in the UK. I mean, you can't make this up, right? The headline is just so full of irony. It's delicious and, and dripping with it. But there is a, a reason, according to the government. But let's go through this. The Eye uh, newspaper has reported this morning An exclusive saying that actually the UK has granted asylum to six Rwandans. And what does that tell us? Well, the UK government is trying to pass a law that says Rwanda is a safe country to send refugees to or asylum seekers uh, to have their claims processed. So the fact that the UK is accepting Rwandans under asylum. does seem a little contradictory at first glance to the intent of sending unwanted migrants to Rwanda. How can they be deemed safe there? Well, the UK government through the Home Office has said uh, actually this is very separate. Rwanda hosts uh, hundreds of, um, more than 100,000 asylum seekers actually. I've been there, Gashora, at its facility in in Rwanda where they process asylum seeker claims and it is very different, they argue, to be persecuted by the Rwandan government. We do know that there are obviously huge internal uh, crackdowns by Kagame's government on, on dissent and opponents and that doesn't necessarily mean that somebody coming from a different country to have their claim processed would be persecuted by the Kagame government under those conditions. But for a headline, boy, it's a a real catcher, isn't it?
0: Letika Burke, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. The time here in London is 7.32. A quick look now at the latest headlines. Republican candidates have made their final pitches ahead of what's predicted to be one of the coldest caucuses to be held in Iowa. Donald Trump has a commanding lead over his rivals, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis. It's not clear how the perishingly cold weather could affect turnout to the traditional debates, which are seen as a scene setter for the Republican battle for the presidential nomination. Hamas has released a video showing three Israeli hostages it is holding in Gaza. The hostages are urging the Israeli government on the video to stop its offensive against the group. Yesterday, both sides marked the 100th day of the war. Residents in the Icelandic fishing village of Grindavik have been forced to flee their homes after a volcano erupted and lava poured towards their homes, destroying several. This is the second volcanic eruption on the Reykjanes Peninsula in a month and the second time local residents have been told to evacuate. And protesters have threatened to storm Guatemala's Congress after the inauguration of the country's president and the swearing-in of new Congress members was delayed without explanation. Supporters of Bernardo Arévalo were told that he was instead at a hotel in Guatemala City. President-elect Arévalo vowed to restore democracy and address corruption in Guatemala, the most populous country in Central America. This is the Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, as we've just heard a moment ago this weekend, as the world's elite gather for the World Economic Forum, there was a separate meeting in Davos of security officials. Their topic of discussion was Ukraine and what the outside world can do to help us to bring about an end to Russia's invasion. Well, I'm joined in the studio by Stephen Diel, Russia analyst and regular Monocle radio voice. Good morning,
7: Stephen. Good morning. Good to
0: have you. So this meeting was yesterday, but it's sort of an extending, mutable thing. Um, What happened and, and who was in it?
7: Well, there was a lot of talking um, and this is one of the things we have to see as encouraging at the moment as long as it's followed up by action. But there were 83 countries uh, joined this meeting, which is the biggest. It's the fourth that there have been over the last couple of years that the Ukrainians have called. Um, 83 is the biggest number. Um, Brazil, India and Saudi Arabia, were, were, it was noted, were there, which is particularly significant because one of the features of the response of the world to the Ukrainian war um, is that the global south as it's known, i.e. not the western world, um, has been mixed in its response. Um, Russia has some supporters um, and countries like Brazil and India, uh, their their participation was seen as being very positive. Um, the, the big missing part, well two big missing partners I suppose really, one was China and of course the other was Russia. Um, Russia is not featured at Davos. It's at not invited, is it? It's isn't... not invited, no. So that's not surprising. Um, but that's, it's encouraging that the meeting has taken place with such a large number of countries. But then the question is, okay, what's going to happen next?
0: The the, the thing that we mentioned a moment ago, and, and the line that was coming out last night is the, is the comment from the Ukrainian presidential chief of staff, Andrei Yermak. He said, China needs to be at the table in order for peace to happen. Why is he saying this?
7: China is seen as being crucial in the whole question of the of the Ukraine war. Um, so far, they've played a very clever, careful game. Um, as far as we know, they haven't provided Russia with weapons, even though we know that Russia has asked for China to provide them with weapons. Um, but at the same time they 've supported russia in the u n security council uh, when when uh, there 've been debates they they haven 't voted against russia um, they know they have a good relationship with russia um I don't believe the, the the lines that Putin and Xi come out with saying they're best friends, but um that they, they do have a, a working relationship. But of course China also has a huge relationship with the rest of the world. You know, go into any shop and find something that says made in China, it'll probably take you ten seconds. Um and China so therefore China doesn't want to queer its pitch with the rest of the world in terms of economic relations. Um but China is, is huge. I mean, China is is, you know, is the the coming power these days, and so Ukraine has tried to woo China as well. Um, they would have loved to have seen China there. So that that was a a, a miss at this meeting. Um, but while China doesn't come out. Totally on the Russian side, then Ukraine will still see hope.
0: And you mentioned the presence of the likes of India in Brazil, and the fact that Russia wasn't invited. Um, there are those who say that actually, you can't do this without Russia, and it. It there are security concerns that Moscow has, um, not least Ukraine's desire to join the European Union, Ukraine's desire to, to join NATO. How much is that going to have to be factored in? <sighs>
7: If from Russia's point of view, totally from... The West's point of view, Ukraine joining NATO would not be a threat to Russia. This this threat to Russia idea that NATO is a threat to Russia is entirely dreamt up in Putin's head and encouraged by others. Um, NATO is not an aggressive alliance. NATO, When NATO expanded into Eastern Europe, it wasn't because it was trying to attack Russia. It was because the countries of Eastern Europe, knowing what Russia is like, asked to join and had to meet very strict uh, requirements in order to join. So... Um, You look at Russia and you say, well, why did they start the war in the first place? And in fact, all the reasons they gave for it, Ukraine being run by Nazis, this being a Western conspiracy, they're all nonsense. So on the one hand, you won't have a peace without without Russia stopping fighting. Um, But at the same time, to say that you have to take into account Russia's security concerns uh, is simply Russian propaganda and disinformation.
0: Of all the places, I mean, there are so many talking shops and so many meetings convening across the globe, just not least to trying to keep Ukraine in, in people's focus and in people's eyes. Could the World Economic Forum in Davos be the place where things happen?
7: I have my doubts I'm afraid. Um I'm I'm rather skeptical of all these big organizations. Yes, it's encouraging that that they've got together and and um, President Zelensky will um address the uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos on on Tuesday. Um so it, it does Keep Russia, keep Ukraine, and keep the war there, which is very important. And has become obviously more important since the events in uh, in Israel and and the Gaza since the seventh of October, because that's rather taken the headlines. And it is vital that the world doesn't forget about what's going on in Ukraine. Um, Russia, since the twenty ninth of December, uh, they they tried to ruin Ukrainians' New Year by bombarding them with missiles. Since then, there have been st- a steady increase in missile attacks. There was another heavy missile attack on a number of Ukrainian cities on um, early on Saturday morning, two days ago. Um, so the fact that, um, that, that they've been talking in, in, in Davos and that there's a big group of 83 countries involved, the fact that um, later today, Monday, um, the United Nations Office for the Coordination of human, human, Humanitarian Affairs and uh, the Refugee Council, they are going to uh, launch their plan to deal with Ukrainian uh, refugees and humanitarian needs this year. Um, on Tuesday, tomorrow, um, the European Parliament is meeting to discuss the uh, proposed 50 billion euro, 50 billion euro uh, money to be provided to Ukraine, which of course has been held up by Hungary at the moment. Um, so, these things are happening. This is really important. It's really important that Ukraine is kept in the news. I mean, on the humanitarian issue, um, 14.5 million people in Ukraine uh, are in need of humanitarian aid. Um, six Over 6 million Ukrainians are still refugees. Um, so these are big issues, and it doesn't in any way decrease what's happening in the Middle East. But it is vital that the world doesn't forget Ukraine and does actually keep... Aiding Ukraine.
0: Finally, a, a word on Lev Rubenstein, please, the Russian poet who's died this weekend, a huge figure in the Soviet underground literary scene, um, hit by a car in Moscow.
7: Hit by a car in Moscow on the 8th of January. Um, anyone who thinks that was entirely an accident probably doesn't really know a great deal about modern Russia. I'm not, I can't say for sure that it wasn't an accident, but it just seems um, that to get rid of one, an opponent, not only a dissident from Soviet times, but an opponent to President Putin, an outspoken opponent, an opponent of the war, um, it just fits in with a, a, a trend, sadly, that's happening in, in this in the tragedy of that is that is now russia um another person from the literary scene the writer boris akunin has been declared a foreign agent which is like talking about enemies of the people this is the the modern way the, the post stalin way of dealing with um, people that russia doesn't like um the, the the whole trend in russia at the moment is is to deal with any dissenter one way or another, and uh, I mean Rubenstein is a, is a great loss to the literary world as a poet, um, as well as another loss to the, the brain power of Russia, which sadly has decreased greatly in recent years.:
0: Stephen Diel, thank you as ever for joining me in the studio. You're listening to Monocle Radio.. <laughs> in Copenhagen, which is where we head now, because yesterday afternoon, Denmark's Queen Margrethe formally abdicated, leaving her elder son on the throne. While there was no coronation as such, Danes lined the streets of the capital with the hope of catching a glimpse of their outgoing, long-serving queen and the incoming Frederick X and his wife, Queen Mary. Osanda Brett heard from Helen Russell, who's a British writer based in Denmark, and to Peter Thigerson, who's a royal reporter for Denmark's Politiken newspaper. And they talked about the Change in monarchs and the handling of Denmark's first abdication in 900
6: years.
1: It was the announcement that left a nation in shock. Queen Margrethe II of Denmark using her New Year address to inform the country of her decision to step down. The changeover, which formally took place in Copenhagen yesterday afternoon, 52 years to the day since Margrethe's accession, marks the first abdication of a Danish monarch in almost 900 years. Her son, Frederick, now Frederick X, sits on the throne. Helen Russell is a British writer based in Denmark. A new book, How to Raise a Viking, about the Nordic approach to parenting, comes out next month.
8: People were very surprised. She'd had an operation on her back uh, in February last year and and the recovery time had had been challenging, but it was a big surprise. Uh, It's thought that only the Prime Minister and one or two others knew anything about the Queen's plan in advance. Everyone was off on New Year's Eve and planning to be off on New Year's Day as well and and journalists weren't planning to have to get back to their desks quite so soon.
1: (laughs) Indeed, but uh, Queen Margaret, I suppose, quite a sensible moment to choose when she knew everyone was tuning in on New Year's Eve.
8: I think so. I mean, it's a real tradition. So I was speaking to a friend who said, Oh my children, yeah, they ask from first thing on New Year's Eve morning, Oh, when's the Queen? When do we get to watch the Queen? It's just part of the culture of what you do. And the Prime Minister gives a speech on New Year's Day and that's kind of just for the grown ups, but at six o'clock it absolutely it must see family viewing everybody sits down to watch.
1: Helen the Danish monarchy is often seen as rather informal, that Margrethe had a role to play in that. Do you think things are going to get even more informal now with King Frederick and Queen Mary at the helm? I mean, did anyone see Margrethe as perhaps a little bit old-fashioned?
8: I don't think people did feel particularly that she was old-fashioned. She was always incredibly hardworking, you know, visible around the country. It's a small country, so most people feel like they've met a royal at some point, have some sort of connection. There is a lot of love for Mary and Frederick. The Danish royal tradition is that you marry someone who is not Danish. So it, there's been a lot made of you know, having an Australian queen, and yeah, that's very exciting, but people are accustomed to bringing in new influences. She's been hugely popular here. She's done a lot of work around children. She brought in a, an anti-bullying campaign from Australia that's now in all of the Danish schools. My kids are all part of it that children go to state schools, they even go to public daycare. So there's a lot of sadness because Margaret has been around for as long as most people remember. It's just different. It's a new generation of royals.
1: But as the changeover took place yesterday, and as one of the world's oldest monarchies welcomed a new head of state, there was something absent: a coronation, or indeed any kind of long installation ceremony, with Frederick simply proclaimed king on a balcony by the Prime Minister after his mother had signed the abdication paper. Crowns, regalia, stayed put in Rosenberg Castle. Peter Tigerson is a reporter at Denmark's Politiken newspaper. Coronation is not part of the royal setup in this country. There was a kind of democratisation of, uh, of the society in the mid-19th century. So they got rid of all coronation stuff. And that's been the case ever since. Peter, what, what now for Queen Margrethe? We know her title and it should still be known as Queen Margrethe. Will she still have a role in public life, though?
0: I don't think so. I think she'll stay at her palace
1: or in the other houses she owns. And, and then, of course, if Frederick and Mary have some problems or some questions, of course, you'll answer them. But I think she'll stay
9: remote from everything.
8: Helen Russell. I feel as though she will keep busy because she's always had so many other interests outside of her main role as monarch. I was speaking to one farmer friend actually who was saying oh she's a really celebrated historian she's always had such a good brain for that and another who says oh but she's such a linguist of course she'll want to be traveling she'll want to be keeping up her languages and then another who's saying well no of course her arts will take up most of her time so she's a very well-rounded renaissance woman I, I imagine there'll be nothing keeping her idle.
1: Well, whatever Marguerite has plans, she hands over the reins, leaving Europe now without a reigning queen. Denmark has welcomed Frederick X, who has quite some shoes to fill.
0: That was Zander Brett. Thank you for that, Zander. You're listening to The Globalist on Monaco Radio.
1: UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries.
7: Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today.
9: To find out how we could help you,
7: contact us at ubs.com.
0: It's time now for a roundup of the latest Balkans news. Joining from Ljubljana is Monaco's man in the region, Guy Delorny. Good morning, Guy. Happy Monday to you. <laughs>
2: Thank you very much, Emma, and a happy Monday to you and everybody else listening. Is it
0: freezing where you are? It's, this is boring for everybody who's in the southern hemisphere, but it's absolutely perishing here in London, so I'm sort of doing a bit of a sort of scout around to see if it's colder.
2: You know, I was very relieved because this morning I was uh, cycling uh, into school with my children and I was fearing that I was going to be absolutely frozen to pieces because it's been sub-zero, like about minus five, minus six in the mornings. But today it was a, a, quite a toasty two degrees. I can live with that.
0: Positively tropical. Tell us what news from where you are.
2: Well, it's the twenty-fifth anniversary today of the Račak massacre, and uh, that was an event in Kosovo in 1999, um, which was pivotal in what would and what happened regarding Western intervention uh, in Kosovo. Uh, and the thing is, I bring this up, Emma, because it's not just an historical event, but the fact that we're talking about it today and the way in which it's talked about in Kosovo. Uh, illustrates just how little distance we've really covered since 1999. So, for example, today's uh, going to be marked, of course, by uh, memorial services in in Kosovo. Uh, But there's an organisation called the Genocide in Kosovo, an open wound, which is going to light candles in every town square in Kosovo to mark what it refers to as the genocide by Serbia and just to be clear about this there's never been any conviction of any country for genocide in the history of genocide prosecutions um but we still get this language coming up when people in kosovo and people in serbia talk about each other and more particularly the governments of kosovo and serbia talk about each other and the current government of kosovo has said that it is preparing a genocide suit against serbia that's despite the fact that most um, and international criminal justice experts believe they've got very little chance of succeeding in that as previous efforts to prosecute Serbia as a state for genocide have been unsuccessful. Um, And and I think it illustrates the the depths of the relationship, the the depths it's plumbing really, the relationship between Pristina and Belgrade at the moment, and and the failure of reconciliation. We're still having these sort of conversations 25 years on. Instead of honouring the victims of the Ratchak massacre, it's once again being used as as, as a cause of division uh, between the people of Kosovo and the people of Serbia.
0: What is believed is needed to achieve that reconciliation, which is so needed?
2: Some sort of viable long-term solution uh, would work very nicely. And I think governments which are committed to it. And once again, we've got this week, the European Union is going to be working on that. And this is something we come back to time and time again, Emma. I mean, you you must be quite tired of hearing about this, to be honest with you. But Miroslav Lajcak, who is the uh, EU's special envoy... Uh, to the Western Balkans and to the Belgrade-Pristina dialogue. It's a grand title. And uh, he's going to be at Davos this week, and he is going to meet Prime Minister Albin Kurti of Kosovo and President Alexander Vucic of Serbia, who were both there. They won't be getting together. He'll be holding separate talks with them. There's going to be no question of uh, the three of them getting together and sorting things out. And that, that's the problem. That, that For people like President Vucic and Prime Minister Kurti, reconciliation isn't as politically rewarding for them as maintaining uh, the current enmity is. You know, Mr. Mitch- Mr. Vucic uses it to stoke his support base and Mr. Curti to stoke his.
0: Um, and what effect is this having on local populations? I mean, there are reports that people are so dissatisfied with the conditions in Kosovo that they are upping and leaving.
2: I'm, I'm, so, I'm glad you picked up on this, because uh, that's the second story I wanted to discuss, Emma. Was, uh, this was a report from, from Kosovo's authorities last week, towards the end of last week, saying that uh, more than 150,000 people emigrated in the four years between 2018 and 2022. That's 150,000 people in a country which has an official population of one and three-quarter million uh, and I say an official population because most people believe it's, it's lower than that because a lot of people who have emigrated are still recorded as being resident in Kosovo. Now, this is going to get uh, considerably worse, most experts think, because on the 1st of January this year, the European Union lifted the requirement for holders of Kosovo passports to need a visa before they entered the Schengen area. And they now have this 90 in 180 ruling, but um, to be frank, a lot of people overstay the 90 or they find work within the 90 days um, that they're allowed in the European Union visa-free. And I've seen very high estimates. some Some seem quite extraordinary. Some people saying we reckon we're going to lose half a million people this year. Now, that is obviously an enormous number. Every indication is that people in Kosovo see their future outside of Kosovo,
0: Guy Delauny, thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Now, after last week's Golden Globes, we're running full tilt into award season. The Emmys are happening later on tonight. And we got a taste last night with a Critics' Choice Awards. While well, making sure that his outfits are up to date, uh, is a TV critic and broadcaster, Scott Bryant. Scott, I don't know which dress to wear. <laughs> I
9: mean, I mean, the good thing is that I always find that when it comes to these sort of award ceremonies, of, and when you're watching in front of the TV, you literally could be watch, uh, wearing anything
0: thank you for that right <laughs> so just tell us Well, we started off with the critics choice last night uh, voted by well the the kind of title gives it away doesn't it television radio and online critics um just tell us what happened there the, the highlights from there
9: i mean i i think the kind of the critics choice i mean it was very much um, a lot of talk about um the last of us i mean it was Um, A show which, of course, has been a um, big um, success. One of the darkest shows made by Craig Mason and and Neil Druckmann. Um, I think it has been one of those programmes in which there's been such a delight in the way that it's taken a video um, game and then turned that into a TV show, essentially, without it really losing its heart. But also making a video game into a TV show is a very, very hard thing to do that a lot of things have failed otherwise. I think The Witcher, um, a lot of other programmes have kind of fallen at at the first hurdle because it feels very much like you are playing a game rather than watching a TV show. Um, but the Emmys tonight, I mean, I, I feel that that is kind of like, I see the Emmys being a bit like the TV Oscars just just because they are the ones that... I mean it's it's the ones that a lot of the creators aim for the most but in the tv world you don't really get any bigger whilst in the film world of course this is now the big lead up to to the Oscars Um, so if you look at for example the outstanding drama series um, you've got The Last of Us versus Succession versus The White Lotus, and I think it could go to either one of those three. But you've also got The Crown, which is, of course, the last series and tends to do well with American audiences more than it does uh, British ones in these sort of award shows, along with House of the Dragons and Yellow Jackets. So I would say, a bit like The Critic's Choice, it would probably go between um, either Succession or The Last of Us.
0: And which one are you putting your money on? Oh,
9: probably... Succession i think I think succession of course, has been a real big um, uh, sort of hit. I think it was a program um, which managed to end on such a high of course there 's been big, big uh, drama which looked at who would be. Um, which were one of these um, sort of um, children that nobody really particularly likes, but nobody could not look away, would be inheriting a vast uh, media fortune. I think the final series really knocked, uh, knocked it up a gear, just the fact that it had um, a, a, a twist in the middle of the series that I think people could see coming, but a lot of other people couldn't see coming. But it was also, I think, just, just writing and acting at the top of its game. And I think you only have to look at the the final series of the Game of Thrones to know how a final series of a programme could can, can fall apart. It felt with um, uh, succession and they had been working towards the conclusion um, for quite some time. And I think it felt very confident um, with the conclusion that it, it was aiming towards. And I think it had... Everyone really spellbound by by the final um, performances, but also what it was trying to say.
0: Tell us how much the Emmys this year will give a glimpse of what is happening in television and how successful the industry is at the moment, given the fact that we've had the writers' strike for the last year. And you, the impact, will will it be seen?
9: I mean, I think it will be because... I mean, there's been far fewer TV programmes made, but also if you look at the streaming uh, wars so far, um, it's actually been on a bit of a downward trajectory anyway. I think what you've seen is maybe what the TV landscape would have been like in sort of two to three years' time. But but now, I mean, a lot of big streamers putting less into original programmes, but also... um, domestic TV channels, their version of ABC, NBC. Um, so not really um, having as many um, big releases either. I think what um, is interesting is that the fact that you are still seeing um, a real sublime level of competition at the top level, but these are shows that have been also running for quite a long time. So for example, Succession have been on for a lot, quite quite a long time. Ted Lesser, who, which is also rapping has been on for quite some time. So it does kind of it does make you wonder exactly where the next programs are exactly going to come from. But also, I find that with award ceremonies, they tend to be awarding them to shows that might not have the largest selection of viewers. The same thing's happening in TV is what happens in film in which programs where maybe people on the east and west coast of America uh, watching their sort of um, and are. Uh, very critically acclaimed um sort of watcher program but aren't really resonating with you know a, a mass audience in the same way of let's say friends did back in the 90s so i think that that uh, you end up sort of having a um sort of elitism when it, when it comes to these awards anyway whether that really reflects what the viewers actually uh, watch um i don't really think it sort of matches up in in the same way
0: Scott Bryan, thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. That's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Laura Kramer and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our researcher was Naomi Equer, and our studio manager was Mariella Bavan with editing assistance by Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, more music on the way. Vincent is back with the briefing live at midday here in London and I'll be back with The Globalist tomorrow. Hope you can join me for that. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week.